confusion over what Christmas is all about abounds. And to be honest with you, I think much of it is rather endearing. Uh, a few nights ago, uh, our family, we piled into the van for an errand, followed by some random driving through neighborhoods to look at Christmas lights. And if you, if you know our family, then you know that sometimes we will actually map out a, a route according to Holly's tacky Christmas lights. But sometimes we will just get into the car and drive and discover kind of unknown gems. Some of my favorite light displays are those which are utterly confused about Christmas. Uh, you, you know the ones I'm talking about right here. They're usually the homes with the large blow-up kind of features. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the blow-up figures like the, the, the fire-breathing dragon with the Christmas cap on top. And then you've got Santa uh, poking out of the outhouse. Uh, and, and you've got uh, Lord Vader with his lightsaber drawn watching over the nativity scene. Just utterly confused about what Christmas is all about. And, and still, somehow it's quaint and, and endearing, at least to me. Uh, confusion, Christmas confusion is common, I think. So it's reasonable to ask, what is Christmas all about? Uh, maybe that's why you've turned up here this morning. Maybe you want to get a, a better handle on what Christmas is all about. And if you have, please know that I'm, I'm glad that you're here. This morning we're going to turn to a portion of God's Word that on the surface is, is not an obvious Christmas text. Um, in this text we won't find a description of Jesus' birthplace and, and what happened there. We won't find uh, Joseph and Mary snuggling the baby Jesus. But we will find one of the most explicit statements, one of the most explicit statements in the whole Bible as to why Jesus came. Jesus Christ is not what, but who Christmas is all about. And who would or could better explain the meaning and purpose of His coming than Jesus Himself. And I hope that as we consider, read, and reflect on a portion of John chapter 6 this morning, that any confusion that we may have about Christmas will dissipate. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you and invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 22 and work our way through verse 59. I hope that we would make it through verse 71, but that's just not going to happen today. So we're just going to look at verses 22 through 59. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, you'll find the passage beginning on page 891. 891. And, and since we're kind of dropping into the middle of John's Gospel, allow me just to kind of catch us up on what we've learned so far, or what's transpired really so far in John's Gospel. The, the Gospel of John, the first thing we should know about it, it's, a, it's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. It was written by one of Jesus' most beloved disciples. It was written by a man who walked and talked with Jesus for years. He, he knew him well. It was written by a man who literally leaned upon Jesus as they sat together at the dinner table. It was written not long after Jesus' death and ascension into heaven. And all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus, He has been presented uh, to us as the Messiah and the Son of God, so that we may believe in Him and have life in His name. From the early chapters of this Gospel, we learn that in the beginning, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And that foundational truth makes sense of, of much of what we see Jesus doing, such as turning water into wine, divinely knowing what's going on in the hearts of people, uh, healing many, walking on water. And as you might be able to tell if you scan your eyes across the first 21 verses of chapter 6, 
You see that Jesus, he, he fed more than 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. Now in our passage this morning, in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59, Jesus, he, he teaches the crowd and he teaches the Jews and his disciples the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's within this explanation, it's within Jesus' explanation of his feeding of the 5,000 that we get one of the most explicit statements of why Jesus came. Uh, we're going to look at these verses in their context so that we uh, kind of experience the full impact of these verses. But for now, let me just kind of point them out to you. So if you scan your eyes down to verse 38, uh, you'll see there that Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. What does that mean for you and me? We'll skip down to verse 50 now and see what Jesus says there. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So here's the main thing that I want you to take away from this passage. Jesus came down from heaven to do God's will, so that God's people would have eternal life. I pray that as we study John 6, we would believe in Jesus and have eternal life in His name. What we find throughout this portion of Scripture is that Jesus' message, His teaching about why He came, is actually hard to receive. The crowd that Jesus speaks to evidences confusion. The Jews, and by which John means the Jewish religious leaders, the Jews argue and enter into conflict with Jesus over His teaching. So if we are to move from confusion to clarity... And from conflict with Jesus to the conviction that He is our Savior, the only Savior, then we must place no confidence in ourselves. No, we must count Christ Jesus worthy of every ounce of our faith. If you're taking notes this morning, these two points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. From confusion to clarity, and from conflict to conviction. From confusion to clarity, and from conflict to to conviction. I'll repeat those points as we're moving into each new section. Let's begin by considering from confusion to clarity. And as we do, uh, let me read for us verses 22 through 40. Please, please follow along as I read. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, Truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, 
Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Well, I hope you see here that these verses, they're, they're filled with clarity and confusion, with ignorance and blindness, security, and really everlasting hope. All of these perspectives and emotions have to do with how the crowd is relating to Jesus and how Jesus is revealing himself to the crowd. As we read verses 22 to 24 and see the crowd looking for Jesus or seeking him, as verse 24 says, anticipation begins to build. However, when we come to verse 26, Jesus exposes the heart of the crowd when he says there, look at verse 26 again, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, this crowd, they saw the sign that Jesus performed in the feeding of the 5,000. They saw it on its surface. John chapter 6, verse 14 makes that explicit. What, what Jesus is saying is they didn't really see the meaning of the sign. In the sign, their eyes didn't go to the Lord. They went to the loaves. From the sign and the loaves, they, they did not see that they were to put their faith in Jesus and believe in Him as the Son of God and Messiah. In Jesus, they, they only saw a man who could satisfy their stomachs for a day. And not a Savior who would satisfy their hearts for all eternity. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. If I may, I'd like to ask you just to stop and think for a moment about those opening words of verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Ask yourself, what, what am I laboring for? What are we laboring for? What are we working for? What are we looking to? Who are we looking to in order to give our lives significance and meaning and satisfaction? That's a worthwhile question to chew on as we approach the closing of one year and the opening of another. Is the goal of your labor, work, more money, power, uh, prominence, pleasure, or, or something else? Is what you are laboring for going to perish? 
How could we labor for something that is lasting? Did you know that your work and labor in this world can reveal that you have the hope of eternal life? That you've made Jesus your food? Which is just another way of saying that you've made Jesus the center of your life. That you've placed your faith in Jesus. It's a, it's a really powerful analogy when you think about it. Just as we eat multiple times a day, just as we eat all throughout the day, we need to be placing our faith in Jesus all throughout the day. Not worshiping our work, not depending upon it to give us life and satisfaction, but worshiping Jesus as we work. We work for Jesus' glory, so we work hard. Uh, we work for Jesus' glory, so we do excellent work. We work for Jesus' glory, so we work to serve others and bless others through our work. We work for Jesus' glory, so we rest from our work. Jesus urges the crowd not to be hungry merely for physical food, but for spiritual food, for food that endures to eternal life. And Jesus he identifies himself as the source of that food. He's the son of man who can give it. And the crowd can receive this food from him because on him, God the Father has set his seal. The Father has approved of his son's ministry and mission. That was not only seen at the Spirit's descent upon Jesus at his baptism and the expression of the Father's pleasure, Remember, God the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But also throughout the whole course of Jesus' ministry, as He performed one divine work after another, which honored the Father and revealed Jesus' true character as the divine Son. The crowd, having heard Jesus speak about labor or work there in verse 27, responds with a question about work there in verse 28. They want to know what they must be doing to be doing the works of God. Here the crowd is clearly confused. They want to know what they need to do in order to do the works of God. They're, they're probably thinking, you know, Jesus, he, he knows how to do the works of God. I mean, so now let's, let's hear it from him, how we can do the works, you know, like he's done. They were only looking at matters materially and not spiritually. So Jesus clarifies there in verse 29 by telling him that the work of God is this, that you believe in him whom he has sent. How anticlimactic, right? No, no, no. What is it that I can put my hands to? What is it that I can do? And Jesus says, no, believe in me. The work that God requires of this crowd of, of us is to believe in Jesus. In one sense, faith, faith isn't really a work at all. It, it, it's not a rule to keep or a regulation to follow. It's a reposing in Jesus Christ and receiving by faith, all of the works that He has done on our behalf. Now, all of this is not to say that faith does no work. Quite the contrary. James tells us, true faith is a faith that works. But what are good works with no faith in Christ? Good works with no faith in Christ can simply be described in the words of verse 27 as laboring for food that perishes. The reply of this crowd, I think, is somewhat surprising. Uh, from verse 30, we get the impression that they're almost ready to believe that Jesus was sent from God. 
They would, they would just like some kind of sign of confirmation first. They, they almost appear ready to believe that Jesus sinned for God. Look at verse 30. He says, so they said to them, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? The blindness, I think, is really quite staggering. When we read verse 30 in the flow of John's narrative, from the beginning of chapter 6, we should blurt out, Seriously? You're asking for a sign? I mean, do you not remember that Jesus just fed 5,000 people and that's precisely the reason you were following after him? Wasn't that a sign? And then in verse 31, the crowd has the audacity to ask for bread from heaven. There in, in verse 31, you can see that the crowd even recalls the remarkable period in the history of the people of Israel where God provided through Moses in the wilderness. We read about it earlier in the service from Exodus chapter 16, if you recall. It's almost like the crowd is giving Jesus a suggestion. You know, you know Moses, he did this really remarkable thing, Jesus, when he, he fed people from heaven. If you could just do something like that, that would, really, that would really help us to believe you. He did just that. He just did that. Don't you remember yesterday, right? The 5,000 loaves? They, they don't see, actually, that Jesus is... <coughs> Jesus is the new Moses, and he's already proven it. Now, let's just pause for a minute. We've got to be careful about not being too hard on this crowd. Um, the truth is, is that we, too, are forgetful. Some of us have already forgotten what we've had for breakfast this morning. Uh, sadly, sometimes we fail to really hold on to God's rich blessings from last Christmas or last week or, or last night. Uh, we've got to be careful not to be too hard on this crowd, on this confused crowd, for, for we're a lot like them. And therein lies the real danger. The real danger is not that we might have failing memories, but that we fail to believe the truth about Jesus. That is what is really at stake here. That is what is really at stake in the Christmas confusion. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning... And you've made some kind of bargain with God. Uh, perhaps you've said to God, you know, God, I'll believe you if you show me some kind of sign from heaven. If you prove yourself to me. The problem with that is that God has already done that in Jesus Christ. God has appeared in the flesh. He performed mighty works right in front of people's eyes and still they did not believe. Friend, we, we don't need a, a sign from God, for He has given us His Son, Jesus. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with us. The problem is with the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. Jesus responds to their request for a sign of work in verses 32 and 33 by reminding them what really took place in Exodus 16. You see, they, they've actually misunderstood something about Exodus 16. It wasn't Moses who gave Israel bread from heaven in the first place. It was God the Father who gave Israel bread from heaven. And part of God's purpose in giving Israel manna in the wilderness was to foreshadow what would one day he would one day give in his son, true bread from heaven. That is what Jesus is driving at there in verse 33, that he is the bread of God who has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is revealing himself to the crowd as the food that endures to eternal life. And what, what was the crowd's response? You see there in verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. We need it each and every day. But Jesus, he's not talking about physical bread. He's talking about himself. The crowd, they don't get it. So Jesus makes himself perfectly clear there in verse 35 by telling the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, this crowd, they had their fill of loaves, but they had not been filled with faith. If they were no longer to spiritually starve, then they would need to place their faith in Jesus. And the same is true for you and me. Sadly, as Jesus says in verse 36, they had seen him, and yet they did not believe. It's really actually a, a solemn scene. And yet, look at the wonderful words of Jesus in verses 37 to 40. There is a promise in these verses. First, Jesus will not be rejected by all. No, many will come to Jesus. The Father has given this shepherd sheep. And all the sheep, all of those who will believe in Jesus will come to him. There is no doubt or uncertainty about it. And when they do come to him, Jesus, he won't ridicule them or send them away for their past ignorance and unbelief. No, Jesus will never do that. Friend, Jesus will not turn you away. If you come to him in faith, he won't hold your past sins, your ignorance and your unbelief against you. There's no need to run from him. But you do need to run to him. To those that come to Jesus in faith, He will give them the food that endures to eternal life. How can He do that? Because He Himself is the eternal God. That's one of the staggering implications of verse 38. He came down from heaven. Let me just take that in. He came down from heaven. Who? God the Son came down from heaven. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He is proclaiming His divinity. He's proclaiming that He is God. And this is one of the reasons that He got into conflict earlier in the Gospel of John. Because He was making Himself equal with God in John chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus was saying that He was one with the Father. What do you think of this kind of statement from Jesus about who He is? This kind of statement revealing He is God. What do, you, what do you think about Jesus when He says that kind of thing? I think that C.S. Lewis, he's the author of the well-known book, Mere Christianity, he made a valuable observation when he said that we can really only do one of three things with this, this kind of statement from Jesus. We can either agree with Jesus, that He's Lord and God, or we can disagree with Him and call Him a liar. Or, we need to warn others about him because only a lunatic says things like this, that I have come down from heaven. So, so which is it? Is Jesus Lord? Is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? Friends, I think C.S. Lewis is right. Jesus is either the Lord of heaven who came to earth or else he was a liar or a lunatic. Read through the eyewitness accounts of Jesus for yourself. Read through the New Testament Gospels. It's clear that Jesus is God. 
Along with being fully God, it's also clear that Jesus is fully man. He wasn't some angel or a heavenly being kind of floating on earth. He was a real flesh and blood man. He broke bread and he ate it. He slept. He wept. He grew weary and tired. Jesus had to be a man. But he was a man unlike any other. Just take a look at those words in verse 38. Not to do my own will. Every other man you've ever known, and woman for that matter, have been chiefly concerned with their own will over God the Father's will. That's the way that every man and woman have lived since the first man and woman. God made Adam and Eve, and He set them in the Garden of Eden, a, a beautiful paradise. Generously and graciously, God told them that they could eat from every tree in that garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was God's will that they should refrain from eating of that tree. But Adam and Eve chose their own will over God's will. They chose to eat of that tree. And because all mankind has descended from them, we have all followed in their footsteps. And we've done so voluntarily. We've all decided that we're going to live according to our own will rather than God's will. That's why there's sin in this world. That's why there's conflict in our families, our workplaces, our schools. But the good news of John chapter 6, verse 38, is that God the Son came down from heaven and He took on human flesh to do God the Father's will, to do what we have not done, to live a life of perfect righteousness and obedience unto God the Father, to do everything that God the Father wanted Him to do. And here in verse 38, Jesus is expressing something of His own consciousness of His place in God the Father's great plan of redemption. He, is, give, he gives Himself to doing the Father's will. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus had been charged with working against God's purposes by working on the Sabbath. But here, he again affirms that he works in accordance with and for the Father's purposes and will. And what is the will of God the Father for Jesus? Look at there, verses 39 and 40 again. Jesus states what the Father's will is twice. The will of God the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Those who are given eternal life cannot be lost, for God's will cannot be thwarted. And the Son cannot fail in His mission. He will raise all of His people up on the last day. We who believe in Jesus may physically die. And yet, when we die, we will immediately pass into glory. You can see 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Then on the last day when Christ comes again to judge the world in perfectly, perfect righteousness, He will raise our physical bodies from our graves, reuniting our souls and glorifying our bodies in the process. What was initially perishable, our bodies, is raised imperishable. What was sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What was sown in weakness is raised in power. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. That 
is what Jesus is promising his people here in John 6. A resurrected and glorified body like his on the last day. So what should this crowd do in response to Jesus' teaching? They should be confused no longer. They should believe in Jesus. What should we do? What should this crowd do? We should believe in Him. This is how we move from confusion to clarity. We should believe Jesus promises here. We should take Him at His word, believing that we have eternal life and that He will raise us up on the last day. And if this is true, and it is, it is true. If this is true, then we should give ourselves to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ought to change our lives too. If you're not going to endure the eternal terrors of hell, because God has graciously given you life in Christ, can you not patiently endure the line at the DMV? Or Starbucks or Walmart or Target later tonight because you haven't finished your Christmas shopping? You know, can you not patiently endure ridicule for your faith? Don't you now have the freedom to die for Christ? Because nothing, nothing worse can happen to you. Yes. And you can store up your treasures in heaven and love your enemies and disciple others and spend yourself for the sake of Jesus Christ. The promises of the Lord Jesus Christ here in John 6 are remarkable. He doesn't promise us power, health, wealth, and happiness. Jesus never plays to the fleshly desires of men, but he does speak to their needs and the pleasure of God. That's a good way to draw a crowd. It's a way a lot of people draw a crowd today. Promise them an immediate return of goods today with no hardship at all. Instead, Jesus has a different method of teaching. Jesus often says that those who follow him will suffer for the sake of his name but with all of the suffering that the people of God endure in this life, what Jesus is telling us here is that his sheep will receive, in the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, they will receive an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So friends, brothers and sisters, let's not be confused like the crowd Let's be clear on, what, on Christ and why He came, putting our hope in Him and His promises of eternal life. Well, having considered the confusion of the crowd and our need to move from confusion to clarity, let's turn and consider Jesus' conflict with the Jews and our need to be moved from conflict to conviction. And as we do, let's read verses, let me read verses 41 to 59 for us. In there in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said I am the bread that came down from heaven they said is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know how does he now say I have come down from heaven Jesus answered them do not grumble among yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. 
He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Well, the scene is set for conflict there in verse 41, when the Jews are said to grumble about Jesus' conversation with the crowd. As I mentioned earlier, when John uses the phrase, the Jews throughout his gospel, he's typically speaking about the Jewish religious leaders. These Jewish religious leaders objected to the assertion that Jesus had come from heaven. They think of him as a mere man of flesh, a mortal of the earth. Supposing they are justified in their views of him, they they assert that they know his father and mother. That is proof enough that he is not from heaven, they think to themselves. Jesus then speaks into this grumbling and disagreement in verse 43, telling them not to grumble among themselves. And let's be honest, like the crowd, we share much in common with the Jewish religious leaders. I wonder how many of us here have objected to Jesus' teaching. Not just to what Jesus says here in John 6, though maybe that's happening in your own heart here this morning. We've also objected to Jesus' teaching elsewhere. We have, from time to time, wanted a Jesus who will only give us good things like bread. We've wanted a Jesus who will only say nice things to us about our future and our hearts, rather than speaking openly and honestly about our unbelief and sin to warn us about what will happen if we do not turn away from sin. We've all grumbled at Jesus' teaching. But the thing is, we don't have any right to grumble at Jesus' teaching. Especially since He has come from heaven. He is God in the flesh. One of the real challenges about reading the gospel accounts of Jesus is that we have to make sure we hear the whole of what is said about Jesus and not just the parts that we want to hear. We also have to humble ourselves and fight not to grumble against Jesus and his teaching. What is interesting here is that we're not told that Jesus heard the religious leaders grumbling. Perhaps Jesus heard them. Perhaps he overheard them speaking. Perhaps they were speaking loud enough in such a way that Jesus could hear them. Or perhaps Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Jesus has displayed that kind of divine insight before. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if he's displaying it here. Jesus knows our grumbling too. And our grumbling is a problem. But it's not the root of the problem. Grumbling is a symptom of the greater problem. And that greater problem is our unwillingness to affirm that Jesus is God, our creator. And that as the author of our lives, he may rule and express his authority over our lives as he pleases. Grumbling reveals a heart that lacks faith and belief that God is all good, all wise, and can be trusted all the time. Either way, whether or not Jesus heard their grumbling in verse 44, Jesus addresses their inability to see that he has in fact come down from heaven saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John's gospel, Jesus coming, or sorry, John's gospel, coming to Jesus means nothing less than coming to him in faith. John chapter 6, verse 35 made that perfectly clear. So here we see in verse 44 that no one, no one can come to Jesus in faith unless the Father draws him. And we know that the Father will draw many to faith in Jesus because he will raise them up on the last day. If the Father drew no one, if Jesus saved no one, if no one came to Jesus, then there would be no one to raise up. But the Lord Jesus will have a people to raise up on the last day because the Father will draw many to faith in Jesus. Is he drawing you? To put it slightly differently, um, we really do personally and sincerely come to Jesus in faith. And we come because the Father has drawn us to Him. But how does the Father do this? He, through the work of the Holy Spirit, convinces us, convicts us of our sin, of our danger of facing His eternal judgment, and of His provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. Having seen our sin in our Savior, He renews our wills. He regenerates us, causing us to be born again in the words of John chapter 3. And having been born again, we are enabled to come to Jesus, to embrace Jesus in faith. So let me ask you again, is the Father drawing you to Jesus? Have you come to understand that you are a sinner? Have you come to understand that you're actually helpless? You are helpless before God in your sin. Do you want Jesus to rescue you? From your sin? Are you, are you ready and eager and desire to turn away from your sin and to give yourself to Jesus in faith, believing that He can deliver you from sin's consequences? If so, then, then maybe God, in His matchless mercy, is drawing you to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christian, since God will do this work, Shouldn't we spread his gospel liberally? Shouldn't we seek to scatter the seed of his word at every opportunity? We don't know who God the Father will draw. And quite frankly, it's really not our place to know. Our calling from the Lord Jesus Christ is to proclaim the riches of his grace, to speak of the internal inheritance that those who trust in Jesus Christ have. So Christians, speak and tell and proclaim 
that neighbor that you've been meaning to have over, have him over and tell him about Jesus Christ. That coworker you've been meaning to take the conversation to the next level with, go out to lunch and proclaim Christ. Break through the barrier with your sibling or, or with your parent or extended family member and tell them about Christ. Let's call as many to faith as we can and joyfully leave the work of effectual calling and drawing to God the Father. The Father will effectually call sinners to faith in the Son. And that's at least one reason why Jesus quotes the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah there in verse 45. Jesus understands that Isaiah 50, 54 verse 13 and Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 4 teach that God will effectively and effectually draw sinners to faith in Him. Not one of God's people will be lost. In verse 46, Jesus asserts that He has seen the Father. This is another staggering claim from Jesus. What Jesus is revealing to us is that He has had the privilege, by virtue of who He is, the eternal Son of God, He's had the privilege to see the Father. That would have been a startling, a shocking claim to the Jews. The Old Testament relentlessly states that no one can see God and live. But do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus says that He has seen God the Father. This means that Jesus has an intimate relationship with the Father, even more intimate than Moses, who we're told in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, spoke to God face to face. Jesus has been authorized and sent by the Father to reveal to His people the very character of God the Father. In other words, He is the mediator between God and men. And this is why He says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That truly, truly statement from Jesus is an emphatic statement. He's saying as powerfully and as passionately as He can that what He is saying is absolutely true. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. This is true beyond the shadow of a doubt. And this is the conviction that we must have about Jesus if we are to have eternal life. In verses 48 to 51, Jesus, he really circles back to what he has previously told the crowd. Only this time his words contain an implicit call to faith and the promise of eternal life to those who believe. He's saying that he is the living bread who came down from heaven, verse 51. And that he can give heaven itself, he can give eternal life, to those who believe in Him. But then He gets even more provocative by saying that the bread that He will give for the life of the world is His flesh. And Jesus, no doubt, has His death in view here. He will give His life on the cross. He will give His flesh and body to be crucified and so bear the punishment that our sins deserve. He will die so that His people, people from every corner of the world, might live. And as you can see there in verse 52, this sets the Jewish religious leaders off again. They're not only in conflict with Jesus, they're in conflict with one another. They're disputing among themselves. They have no category for what Jesus is saying. And they're right to ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Judaism rightly ruled out cannibalism. Jesus isn't speaking literally about giving his flesh to physically eat. He's speaking symbolically. He's been speaking about spiritual matters really the whole time, hasn't he? What he, he said to the crowd, they couldn't see. When Jesus speaks of giving his flesh and blood to eat and drink, he's, he's also not speaking about the Lord's Supper. 
Rather, he's speaking about what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. His life and death on behalf of sinners. In the words of Colin Brown, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about John 6. See, when we place our faith in Jesus, in His righteous life, and vicarious, sacrificial, atoning death on the cross, we metaphorically feed upon His flesh and drink His blood. We are given eternal life from His life and death. Isn't that what verse 54 is saying? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This verse is really just a restatement of verse 40. Keep your eyes here on verse 54. And let me read verse 40. So keep your eyes on 54 and listen to what Jesus says in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I pray that you're catching on to what Jesus is saying, that you're being convicted and convinced by what He says. Jesus is simply saying this, believe in me and live. Believe in me and have eternal life. This is the glorious truth of the gospel, the good news. That's the point of verse 57. And this life is so much better than the life that the people of Israel were given in the desert. They were given physical life by physical bread, which was a good and generous gift from God. Nevertheless, that good gift lasted for a limited time. But this life that Jesus gives is life that lasts for all eternity. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of Jesus. I wonder if you find all of this hard to believe. Even if you do find Jesus' words hard to believe, I pray that you would believe them. They are true. And deep down, you may know that they're true. Throughout these verses, Jesus keeps offering his life. And he keeps promising eternal life to those who believe in him. And I'm pretty sure that you know that your life won't cut it before a God who requires perfection. The God who requires us to yield our wills to His will at every moment. You see, the God who made us is perfectly holy and He cannot look upon sin. It cannot be in His presence. And the problem is that we have sinned. Our sins have stained our lives and because of our sin, we are in danger of facing God's just wrath against our sins for all eternity in hell. We need someone else's life. And that's why it is such wonderful news that Jesus offers us His. That's why it's such wonderful news that He came down to do the Father's will. The Bible tells us time and time again that Jesus was without sin. It says that He knew no sin. It says that He was tempted in every way that we are. Yet, He was without sin. Isn't that remarkable? And yet the sinless Jesus gave His own life on the cross for sinners like you and me. And that too was the Father's will. It was the Father's will that Jesus would die in the place of sinners like you and me. And on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him, believe in Him, And three days later, God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death in the place of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And His resurrection is also the proof that He can give what He promises. He can raise you up on that last day because Jesus has been raised up. 
And now Jesus calls you to come to Him and place your faith in Him. Jesus calls you to believe that He lived for you the life that you have not lived. That He died for you the death that your sins deserve. And that He was raised from the grave for you so that you might have eternal life. Friend, I want to encourage you to believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And and if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus gave his life for sinners, then please come and find me after the service. I'd love to talk with you about that. In fact, there's nothing more important you can think about today or tomorrow for that matter. Christian, I want to encourage you to keep feeding on Christ by faith in your heart. Persevere in believing that Jesus died for your sins. The devil would have you think that your sins are too great. But Christian, they are not. Christ is greater still. His mercy and blood are sufficient. Keep believing. Keep confessing your sin and trusting in Christ. Pray for the continued conviction that Jesus is your Savior. He is mine. That that is why He came from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven to do God's will so that God's people would have eternal life. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. You probably noticed there in verse 59 that we're told that Jesus offered this bread of life discourse in the synagogue at Capernaum. It's somewhat strange that John kind of delays this detail until so late in the discourse, but, but looking back on Jesus' teaching on the manna in the wilderness from Exodus 16 and his reflection on Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31, we can see how Jesus is kind of teaching there in this synagogue. It would be appropriate setting. Synagogue was where teaching took place. And Jesus was certainly teaching the crowd and the religious leaders about who he was and what he came to do. Nearly 2,000 years later, we are sitting in a room where teaching takes place. And we've heard Jesus teach us as we've read from John chapter 6. And I guess the question that we each have to ask ourselves now is this Are we confused about Christmas? Are we confused about why Christ came? I I hope and pray that we're not. I hope and pray that because of Jesus' own words here in John 6, that we have greater clarity. I hope and pray that we're convinced that Jesus came down from heaven to do God's will for us and for our salvation so that we might be God's people and have eternal life in Jesus. Out of all the wonderful gifts that we could receive, Jesus is the most wonderful gift of all. And that's why he came, to give us himself. May we receive him gladly now. Would you join me in prayer?